Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. A big welcome to episode 59 of Everyday Buddhism, making every day better. Uh, I hope your summer is going well. Um, I disappeared on you, didn't I? Uh, it's been too long since I released an episode. I went on vacation in mid-July, uh, mid to late July, then took more of the summer for a hiatus to recharge and relax and uh, rethink the next steps for this podcast, which just... Uh, I hope to tease this and I hope to promise something that uh, I will keep the promise of, and that is uh, being more regular on my podcast episode releases. Um, I have a target in mind that would be twice a month uh, and hope I can make it, but, uh, you know, I'm human, so uh, uh, don't uh, go nuts on me <laughs> if, if I don't, um, uh, if I break that promise. So, but I am ready to go again, and I have a not-so-summer hiatus topic to share with you today, and that topic is practice, and specifically, the topic is the 37 practices of bodhisattvas, which is a practice we in the Everyday Sangha are doing together, so uh, this episode is dedicated to my Sangha members. Uh, thank you. Thank you for doing this practice with me. But to help me explain more about the 37 practices and the tradition from which it came and how I found it is my friend and teacher who I depend on for helping me with the wisdom of Tibetan Buddhism, Frank Howard. One of my first teachers said, everyone is your teacher, because everyone is a Buddha. Now that is true, but there are some teachers who come into your life and have major influences on you and your practice and your perspective and the way you do life. Frank Howard, who along with his wife Gretchen Howard, were my first quote-unquote in-person mentors in Buddhism, and they enabled my initial Buddhist refuge or and teachings with Lama Drupan Sonam Jorpo Rinpoche, and teachings by many other wonderful teachers, including His Eminence Garchen Rinpoche and Kempo Sherabodzer, and on and on and on. If not for Frank Gretchen and the center they guide, I would not have had the experience of being in the presence of Tibetan teachers who radiated the wisdom and compassion of Buddha nature like the sun. I will offer a brief introduction to Frank, but I will have his full bio on my website. Frank is a local attorney and the director and teacher at the White Lotus Buddhist Center, Rochester's Tibetan Buddhist Temple. Um, I'll have a link to that website again on my uh, my website uh, in this in the episode section. He has studied and practiced Buddhism since his early 20s and began formal training at the Rochester Zen Center in 1971 under the direction of Roshi Philip Keplow. 
But in January 1981, he and his wife made a pilgrimage to Buddhist holy sites in India and Nepal. And in 1985, after nearly 15 years of attending Zen meditation retreats and practicing as a dedicated Zen practitioner, Frank met a Tibetan Lama, Kenshin Koncha Gyaltsen, and has studied and practiced within the Tibetan tradition since that time. His letters and articles on Tibet have been published in the Wall Street Journal, the Atlantic Monthly, City News, the Democrat and Chronicle, Shambhala Sun, and Snow Lion Publications. He gave a series of public talks at SUNY Buffalo and was interviewed for the, quote, Mystical Arts of Tibet, unquote, a video produced by SUNY Buffalo, concurrent with the visit of His Holiness the Dalai Lama in September 2006. Frank speaks at various venues on topics concerning Tibet and Buddhism. Frank has taken empowerments and teachings from many excellent teachers, including the Dalai Lama, Chetsang Rinpoche, and many others. Frank and Gretchen have two daughters, Megan and Tracy, whom many of us watched grow up at the center. Um, Megan and Tracy are graduates of Harvard and Columbia Colleges, respectively, Tracy is in a Ph.D. program at Columbia University in Tibetan literature, and Megan is in a Ph.D. program at University of California, Berkeley, in Tibetan Buddhist history. Both are fluent in classical and colloquial Tibetan and conversant in Mandarin. Additionally, Megan knows Sanskrit and has studied Japanese. You'll find more about them in Frank's bio on my website. So I'm thrilled to have Frank back on the podcast with me again. I know you'll find his deep knowledge, his faith, and his wonderful sense of humor and contagious giggle a joy to listen to. And now to the conversation. After a two-week sort of summer break, if you will, uh, uh, not two-week, two-month, I'm back, um, hopefully for a little more regular uh, showing up for these podcast episodes, but I'm going to start with a uh, a special guest episode with Frank Howard, who's been on the podcast before. So he's now entered into our realm of second timers, which is very <laughs> rare. I think I only have one other. So <laughs> congratulations, Frank. Uh, and um, I had to have him on this podcast because today I want to talk about, well, I, first I want to talk about practice um, because I've talked about this before, about right effort, about intention. I'm talking about how intention, I've talked about how intention is tied to action in a couple episodes and how intention um, without action is a bit like um New Year's resolutions on February. Um, so, uh, so practice is, is sort of the missing link. And I think from a Western or a new to Buddhism or secular Buddhism view, um, practice is a word I don't even think they know what it means. And I'm not, I'm not accusing people out there of not knowing what it means. I'm just saying it's very rare to be in our culture, come to some interest in Buddhism, and have direct experience with a 
practice, either a teacher who gives you a practice, uh, a Dharma center, Zen center, Tibetan center, um, uh, um, Vipassana center, insight meditation center, whatever, that actually gives you a practice. There is more and more, um, I find more and more like people who come from where they've done like uh, meditation sort of short retreat or long retreat. And so then they take that as a practice. That is a practice. But if you're, if you're still in the point of being a, what I call a nightstand Buddhist, where you have a towering babble of books around you um, and uh, you read them, um, that's not practice. And I'm sorry, it's not practice. So how do we in an everyday Buddhism sort of view, how do we bring what we read into our everyday? Well, in a little book that I've practiced with for a number of years, and I was first introduced to it through the Sangha that Frank is a director at, um, it's called the 37 Practices of Bodhisattvas. And as the name indicates, there are 37 practices. Um, actually, there's an intro, too, that's very important and an outro that's very important. But that's maybe another story for another time. Um, but the 37 practices uh, of bodhisattvas are it's something that's kind of drilled into me. And um, I didn't always know that I it was having an effect on me. I actually like what I was saying about people out there is. I actually kind of read it for a while, you know, or, and it was read to us and we read it together as a Sangha, but that reading didn't always like uh, filter down into like, okay, I walk out of the Dharma center and then I, I, <laughs> I'm doing something based on what I just read. No, I kind of maybe forgot about it. I didn't, uh, I didn't incorporate it. And, and, and that's the thing, even in this book, in this, one of the practice, I don't even think, I think it's one of the practices. Um, uh, uh, yes, practice, uh, practice number was hear, think, and meditate increasingly day and night. Um, this is where I think people who are new to Buddhism, people who are um, nightstand Buddhists, people who are secular Buddhists, they, they, they may hear, which is through a Dharma talk, which is through a book, which is through a podcast. They may think about it. But, and I've talked about this in other podcast ed- episodes, that's usually where it starts. Then they do it again with another book, right? Then they do it again with another book. And therefore, nothing becomes a practice. So this is a focus on practice. And I brought, or Frank was kind enough to say he would be a part of this episode to talk about the 37 practices of bodhisattvas and to talk about maybe what a practice is, to talk about what a bodhisattva is, and to talk about how he came to the 37 practices, and maybe to talk about um, Garchan Rinpoche, who, his, his eminence Garchan Rinpoche, who is where I got this little book of practices uh, through, his, through uh, uh, Frank Center, or the Dharma Center, and uh, through the fact that his, his eminence Garchin Rinpoche would run around and have, he had one of those little things in one hand and his prayer wheel in another. <laughs> and he would always be handing this little, at my, the time I was around was a little red book. Um, so, um, so thank you for joining uh, me again, Frank. Um, 
that's sort of my intro. So if you could like take over by talking a little bit about, you know, how the 30s, well, let's say how the 37 practices became a central focus in the sangha that you are the director of. Yeah, thank you, Wendy. And, and thank you for having me. This is always, um, always fun with you too. <laughs> but also, uh, you know, also productive. It's, 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 it's really an excellent thing for people to be considering all of this. A um, couple things. One, there's this classic teaching in Buddhism that you just referred to of these three steps, so to speak, the three, I can't remember what they're formally called, the three excellences, maybe, maybe not. So many threes floating around. <laughs> um, <laughs> hearing the Dharma, yes, you have to either read, hear traditionally, or see a video or a podcast. You know, you have to, your thinking mind has to come across Dharma teachings. Um, and then, you, you have to hear that, but the next step, and there's a and there's a peace or a stability that comes from just hearing it. I mean, for instance, someone starts out, um, you know, with uh, everyone's different, but just speaking of my own um, history, you know, you start out with like a fear of death or just a complete dissatisfaction with samsara or even a the world or even just a partial uh, dissatisfaction. You know, you see how some things are never going to work out. And even our good intentions always seem to boomerang on us. Um, and, you know, just the state of the world, basically. So, but hearing, you know, the Buddha's teachings immediately means that it's not hermetically sealed uh, shit show. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's a possibility in your mind, and maybe there's a possibility, because you hear what the Buddha did and, and, and his own struggle. So right away, there's more space in your mind instead of being completely overwhelmed with the problems of the world and your own fears and afflictions. You hear for the first time that that's not the entire story. So then the next step is the analysis, the contemplation, the digging into what you've learned. Um, you know, the, like it's only as Dalai Lama you come across and he says, well, you know, patience, anger is a, is a, is a painful state. Look at yourself in the mirror. Look how people run away from you when you're enraged. You look like a demon. Your face is all red. Do you like that? Look, did you feel comfortable? So, and then he says, patience is the antidote. Well, so the contemplating then, you've heard about the teachings on patience, but contemplating is starting to really dig into that. Is that really true? And what does patience mean? Should I be patient when uh, someone's beating up a child? What does that mean? Um, so you have to you know, really engage yourself with the concept itself. But with that deeper understanding, you know, comes a greater space in your mind and greater peace because, you know, it's like, a, well, I'm not quite there yet with, with the meditation, but um, you have a deeper understanding. And so you're questioning and you're going into intellectual doubts and objections. This is very powerful. It's like it says, you know, in, in law, you have to you have to imagine what your opponent's going to say. I, I once said, there's a joke about uh, um, um, a lawyer saying, gee, I've got the hardest job in the world. And the doctor says, a brain surgeon says, are you crazy? I, I do brain surgery. Uh, you couldn't do that. And the lawyer says, yes, but when you're in the operating table, there isn't an opponent on the other side of the table. <laughs> so... 
you have to understand, you know, what are the objections, worldly, uh, religiously, uh, personally, all those. But once you have a degree of, of confidence in what you yourself have pounded out, then only then meditate. Meditation in Tibetan is the word gom. It means to grow accustomed to. It doesn't mean just reading, you know, sitting in contemplating and in crossing your legs or anything. It's, it's, it's 24-7 all the time. You're incorporating this understanding that you have hammered out into your life experience. The really idea is, is that we learn the Dharma, we, then we understand the Dharma, and then we practice the Dharma. Practice is just repetition again and again and again. <clears throat> then <clears throat> we internalize these values. That's the natural process. And in the end, one person has said, we actually become the Dharma. And this is really something hard to believe, but we have the example of so many others for so many years that we can have confidence in that too. But you don't throw away your doubts. It, it's not suppression of doubts. So this text, this 37 practices of bodhisattvas, uh, was composed by a great teacher in Tibet in the 1300s. Uh, he was um, a monk and is in the Dalai Lama's tradition, also in the tradition that I find myself in, the uh, Kagyu, Ka means speech, Gyu means secret, the esoteric um, transmission through speech. Um, he, he this, this, the man who wrote it, Nokchu Togme Zangpo, was a great teacher, and one of his students was a man named Buston, who uh, one of the great figures in Tibetan Buddhism. Um, he lived in a monastery most of his time in a monastery called Shalu, uh, which has like Chinese architecture. It's in uh, central Tibet. My wife and I had the occasion of being there um, a couple of years ago, and uh, without even knowing that he was connected to the place or not much about him, but this is how rich the Buddhist tradition is. Um, there are just so many stories, so many people who have gone through, you know, real struggle um, and uh, come to some sort of understanding. So he wrote this text um, that Dalai Lama has said that his favorite book is the uh, Entering the Bodhisattva Path by this Indian monk, Shantideva. And Shantideva means like peace of the gods. Um, real person who lived, I think, in the sixth century, a long time ago in India. The Tibetans consider it the greatest book in Sanskrit on conduct that came out of um, India. And if you ever go to see Martin Scorsese's movie, Kundun, there's some scenes where there's voiceovers going on, these beautiful poem, poetry. That's from that book, Shantideva. Um, this little book, The 37 Bodhisattva Practices, is considered by many to be like the crystallization of that book. So it's extremely useful because it's so short and it has a minimum of technical terms and it can just be applied to your daily life. So you can read it, you can then start questioning it and you can put these things into effect. Um, I came across it in really a serendipitous way, I just happened to get this pamphlet, this beautiful little pamphlet that Richard Gere had produced for a teaching that His Holiness Dalai Lama gave in New York City. I, I can't remember, I, the Rosemont Theater or something like that, I can't remember, but I wasn't there. But I got this little book and the first half of the book was this classic text by Kamala Sheila, one of the first Indian teachers to come to Tibet on meditation, which is clear 
simple and outstanding. I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, then the last half of the book was this, the 37 Bodhisattva Practices. So I was reading it and, um, you know, finding it fascinating because it's so practical. It just has all these kinds of, you know, situations that arise in your life, in your daily life. And there's like a, an instruction there, but it's instruction that you can actually do. You know, it's not just philosophical philosophizing. <laughs> um, and as often happens, you know, my, certainly my main teacher is Eminence Gartner Rinpoche. And, you know, remarkable, he's now in his 80s, lives in Arizona. Um, really a remarkable figure. You know, Tibetan Buddhism is vast because the Tibetans systematically transmitted, they sent their best and brightest over the Himalayas to India 1,500 years after the Buddha passed away. So at the peak of Indian cultural development of Buddhism, the Tibetan king decided, okay, we're going to be Buddhist now. And they did this, you know, again, systematic transmission. They even developed the written Tibetan language before there was none. Um, so there's a huge range of, of teachings. And this is very, very uh, positive because there's just so, so much to choose from. So if your, your personality doesn't work with a certain kind of style, well, there's another teaching. That will, as long as you have confidence that the, you have Buddha nature, and that the Buddha wasn't mistaken or insane or drunk when he said each one of us has Buddha nature and it can't be developed. So in the vastness of Tibetan Buddhism, it's divided between the old and um, uh, the new, the new teachings. And um, these are part of the new teachings. But again, there's no conflict between these, this, uh, this, this big division. Um, and now I've kind of lost my thought. I don't know where I was going with this. Uh, uh, I was about running. Uh, it was about Garchen Rinpoche and, and sort oh, of yeah. the, the coincidence there. Thank with you. The... Yeah, got it. Well, Gar Rinpoche was recognized at a young age, seven years old, as being the reincarnation of a great teacher in the new school. It just new just depends when the translations came from India. So the new schools, Dalai Lama is in the new schools too. He was on a, he had the traditional training. And at the age of 19, he had done all this practice, all this training. He was like a master of the new school. At that point, China invaded Tibet and Garamche was thrown into a prisoner camp for 19 years. Uh, while there, he was also incarcerated with a man named Kempo Munsel. Kempo means one who knows. It used to be translated as abbot. You know, it's a title. But Munsel means the speller of gloom. So Kempo Munsel was a great master of the old school. Now, again, old school, new school, don't differ in motivation, don't end, differ in end result, but they have like a different technology when you're talking about meditation, some different symbols, but very, very compatible, no, no doubt. But at any rate, Gar Rinpoche converted through his teachings from Kempo Munsel into basically a secret, silent, no outer symbols, wisdom retreat. And so he's very unusual because he's been trained in both the new and the old school, Mahamudra in the new school and Dzogchen, the great perfection or great completion in the, in the old school. Um, so he, you know, a remarkable figure. Um, 
his main teaching is bodhicitta all the time, all the time, all the time. And I think he's one of these people who, through his mental purity, you know, can kind of know what you're thinking or even where what you need. Um, so at any rate, I was reading this book that I had gotten through Richard Gere on the steps of my house, front steps, a beautiful July, you know, no, we went weeks without rain and I would just sit out there and read a verse a day or sometimes more and, and think about it. And then before I knew it, you know, shortly thereafter, Gartner Rinpoche announced that he was coming to Rochester uh, for just a visit and, and he would give teachings on the 37 Bodhisattva practice. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, you know, it's kind of like that, you know, we're always running around thinking that we're manipulating our happiness and designing our path, but there's something much more profound going on. And this is the value of certainly hearing the teachings, knowing that this potential of for each of us is out there, but then, you know, contemplating it, questioning it, analyzing it, go deeply into it because then only then do you have the confidence to begin the meditation. Too many in America, uh, you know, jump into meditation, but they're not trained they don't really know what they're doing. One of the great figures of Tibetan Buddhism in the 1800s, Patarumbache, said, you know, trying to meditate without instruction is like trying to climb a cliff wall without hands. <laughs> we very much need instruction, but you can't be attached to the instructions either. You have to question them, but you have to apply all of this to your mind stream because that is the great teaching. It's the mind it's the mind that's making our, our trouble. So uh, Garjan Rinpoche has passed out, I'm sure, tens of thousands of these little pamphlets. And he's translated it into, I've seen it in Russian, Chinese. Um, he just, he, and, and I, it has outer, inner, and secret meanings. I mean, it, it's, it's incredibly valuable. The first, um, the first 20 or 21, I think it's first 21 verses, are the you know conventional relative truth, um, and then the after that is the absolute truth. Now even there we have to be careful. This great teaching of dividing teachings into absolute and relative uh, by Nagarjuna, <clears throat> done in the um, what six hundreds in India, I think, even before. Um, you know when you talk about absolute truth, that's actually relative. <laughs> the problem right. that we all have is that we're caught in a net. We're caught in a net of our own conceptuality and our own makeup. Of course, we share it with so many people that it seems like totally real. You know, we agree. But the problem with getting out of the net is that you have to pick at the net in order to get out of the net. So there are inherent paradoxes and contradictions. So Nagarjuna presented the teachings as you know, relative, which is also called the deceptive truth, and then absolute truth, which is the nature of the mind. Um, but like he said, even to say absolute truth, we're dealing with it in a conceptual way. So we use concepts to get beyond concepts. And that's one of the great powers of this little book, because it's so accessible. In fact, some, some kind of haughty Western practitioners, you know, could even reject it saying, well, this is just, you know, this is just concepts. Of course, they have the concept that they don't have concepts. <laughs> so it's like <laughs> we're troubled as human beings. <laughs> so anyway, I have just found it. Just we recite it uh, every time we meet at uh, White Lotus. Um, there's nothing, nothing wrong in there. Garam Pache said that the entire 
Buddhist path can be found in that book. Exactly, and that that's uh, I knew you would you would give it that <laughs> the the strength or the power that it possesses, and it's pretty hard in our conventional everyday walking around life, you know, um, to to talk about a little pamphlet with 37 little verses as something that has that power. Um, I mean, it it, it sounds absolutely ludicrous to somebody just tuning in. Um, And uh, (laughs) I mean, really, uh, it really does. But yet it's been my experience, even though I I don't really practice, uh, I don't practice Vajrayana anymore, but I, I, Tibetan Buddhism is, is, is so stuck into my core that it's pretty much where I live when I hear, think, and meditate. That, that's pretty much where uh-huh. I live. And I think that's sort of, the, sort of the magic nature you were talking about, about how all of a sudden something appears that you need the most, and then that, that's the deal. And, and I, the 37 practices sort of appeared to me um, near the well, I was going to say the end of this pandemic, which it isn't at the end, so that's a lie. Um, but after this hard 16 months, um, more recently, I, I, I kept picking up the 37 practices in my morning meditation. And it's like, um, and I was like, geez, where have you been all my life? <laughs> but I, <you've> already... <laughs> you know, it says in the, the Lotus Sutra, that bodhisattvas will spring up out of the earth. And, and this is a remarkable thing because, you know, our egos are so strong. We, we, we truly, we won't have credit for conquering our ego. That, that's how screwed <laughs> up we are, you know? And yet, in a, in a sense, we all come to the Dharma for the wrong reason, but it's because there's something deeper going on there, you know, beyond ourselves. Again, with a great teacher, you know, I look back on my time and, and with him, and, I, and I'm just amazed what a teaching of patience. Because, you know, you're so full of yourself, and you think you know what you're doing, and then they just have such patience. And it's really, really a rare thing to come across someone who loves you more than you love yourself, if that's possible. <laughs> yes, and I would Very say most charming. of yeah, most of us would probably say that's not possible, but actually you feel that the people say that you feel that when you meet the Dalai Lama, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. I've not met the Holy, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. I have met Garchin Rinpoche and I felt that um, uh-huh. even without a direct teaching from him. I mean, uh-huh. I went to teachings with him, but it, they were not real personal. They were, but just the, you know, just the bump on the head and the looking in the eyes, something happens there. And I don't know what that is, but it, I don't really care. It feels good. (laughs) 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 But I wanted to say, you mentioned something about how you emphasize this in a a kind of couple points in what you were talking about, about um, doubt, having doubt. And, And that's something that I've talked about on these podcasts before and with my saga. And I, th- I think it was Do- Dogen who said, um, uh, great faith, great doubt and great effort or something, the, the, the three pinnacles of Zen practice. I, I'm not, I could be screwing up the mm-hmm. author of that statement. Yeah. But, um, to me, that sort of, sort of frames or structures the 
um, the Buddhist path for me because it's it has been mm -hmm. in, in sort of a circular thing like that. It, it's not it's not like linear. It's not like a hierarchy. Mm -hmm. You know, first I had you know it, 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 you 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 start with a little bit of faith because someone you believe or someone you respect teaches you something. So you feel that you have faith and, and then you have a whole bunch of doubts and yeah, that's baloney. Yeah, that can't, that can't be. Yeah. And, and then, and then with great effort applied it, you keep going round and round and round. And people always say to me, why, how can you even use the word faith in Buddhism? Because it's not a theistic religion. Well, it's not that you have faith in a, 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 a an all-knowing, all-powerful deity, but you have faith in the teachings, the Dharma itself. And, mm -hmm. and that faith is much more readily, I think, translated as confidence to the average uh, American. But it's bigger than confidence when you do this circular great faith, great doubt, great effort. But it's the effort. Again, it's the practice. You do have to take them into your life. Otherwise, it means nothing. You'll never yeah, have confidence. You're exactly right. I mean, I, I, the word in Sanskrit for is, is shraddha, and I think it is closer to confidence. But you're right. We were limited in language because faith for us brings up images of um, other things, you know, in our own history and, 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 and conditioning. But it is the confidence. I mean, you know, you can't, you can't boil an egg without confidence. You know, you're, you're relying on past experience. You're relying on what someone who you have trust in has told you. And then, you know, your own, and you go ahead and do it. So there's nothing that happens in life without confidence. I mean, other words, we're just sitting there, you know, like a puddle. <laughs> so, yeah, really true. But I think there is the expression, you know, great doubt, great realization. No doubt, no realization. It's only mm. at the, I think, eighth level bodhisattva that doubts are gone. The, the first seven levels, six levels, sorry, seventh level bodhisattva, which is a, a very, very high state that I've only read about, <laughs> um, is where the afflictions are, are gone, the mental afflictions, and then it's just perfecting the view. So what I'm saying is that there are doubts until that very high level, and, and that's a very high level. So for instance, if you talk about a bodhisattva, a, a, a wisdom warrior, you might think of it as. Sometimes it's translated as a wisdom being, someone who's on the path to Buddhahood. A sattva means being, bodhi means awakening. Um, you know, Lama Tarchin would tell me, oh yeah, on like a scale of one to a hundred, there are all sorts of bodhisattvas in training, but then there's, there's you know, deep realization. And from that, there's the, what's called the, you know, the 10 bodhisattva levels above that. Well, so I'm talking about Doubts exist until the seventh bod great bodhisattva level, a maha sattva. What is the first level? We had a question here. We had a lama here, the Drigan Chabgan, head of the Drigan lineage. Uh, and someone asked, how do I know if I've attained the first bodhisattva level? And he looked at her and said, constant joy. <laughs> so <laughs> everyone- That pretty bird rules that out, right? Humble fast, right. <laughs> But it's seven levels above that, the doubts are gone. So we're going to have doubts. The doubts are not a problem. The doubts are not bad. Um, the danger of the doubts is that we throw the baby out with the bathwater. 
Uh, and that is, again, that's not blind faith. You just stop the questioning. You can have a doubt that persists for like 20 years, and then suddenly one moment it's gone. And when it's gone, it's gone. Gate, gate, paragate, parasamgate, bodhisvaha. There's such deep experience and meaning in all these things. But it is the practice. It's the doing. This is the genius of the Dharma. Because it's our Buddha nature, we don't have to create it. We're always trying to you know, do something with, with ourselves because we, we feel inherently powerless. And so we're going to fix it. You know, we're going to fix the world. This is the delusion of especially the governing classes of, of the West. They think they're God. That was, the, that was the fault of Adam and Eve way back in the beginning. The, 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 the serpent said, eat of this and you will be as God. This is our fundamental arrogance. We see it all the time. We, we throw up these, these governmental figures and we make them into little mini gods, whether it's Fauci or Mueller or, or Koskakin, whoever it is, you know, we, we make our leaders into authority figures, thereby disempowering ourselves. Well, in Buddhism, so much even more so. We're looking for something to do. We just have to unfold it. So it comes down to practice. This is the genius. It's not figuring it out intellectually. The intellect is a tool, but it's like a mother changing diapers. You know, the first kid, this is like a new experience. I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, you know, you have doubts, you're uncertainty. But by the fourth kid, it, she does it in her sleep. And if you talk to like a great craftsman, like some Japanese woodworker or something, you know, uh, they've so inculcated the experience of decades of choosing the right wood, knowing which wood works, which oil goes with that, what kind of tree you get, what side of the, the, the mountain the tree grows best on, all of this stuff. You know, he can be asked a question by a neophyte and he doesn't even know how to answer because it's beyond concept. And yet he knows because he has practiced. Practice is, you know, I think the word in Sanskrit is recoursing, like, you know, a racehorse going around the track, just continually just going. And this is amazing. I mean, I, I, the, the trick is that it takes faith. Nothing happens without faith. Guru Rinpoche said that, you know, a mind without faith is like a seed that has been burned. It can't sprout. And this is what I see the greatest challenge in the West, especially, because you know, you can have faith too easily, so to speak. I mean, people in Asia can be just going through the motions and not really digging into it. There's, there's no escape as a human being. We've got to do the work. But in the West, the, the, the real problem seems to be faith, that we don't, you know, we don't have a cultural support for it. Um, uh, happily, it's better now. Once the Dalai Lama won the Nobel Peace Prize, at least that helped people a great deal. Before that, I, you know, I, I came to Dharma before that you know, all sorts of personal crises. My father thought I had gone insane. <laughs> I had a job interview. I had spent 10 years, again, before the Dalai Lama, I had spent 10 years at a Zen center uh, and then decided to have a family and, and needed a job. So I had a job interview and I had this 10-year gap in my <laughs> my resume. You know, I went from working at the Smithsonian to to nothing for 10 years. And so they asked me, well, what were you doing? I said, well, you know, I was at a Buddhist center and I was interested in meditation and things like that. And the guy looked at me and said, oh, yeah, yeah, Buddhism. My wife was into witchcraft. <laughs> That's as far as it got. So you have to have faith. It's the faith that keeps you going. And actually, it's the deeper faith, even deeper than you know you have, because you would not come across 
these Buddhist teachings, except for extremely positive karma. There's something deeper going on. That's true for everybody. There's deeper stuff going on all the time, but we don't recognize it. The faith is the kind of the divine discontent that keeps you going despite yourself. And you can have the experience where you're doing some practice just kind of like half-heartedly because it just happens to be going on at the Dharma Center and the group that you're with is doing it or your girlfriend is doing it, whatever it is. You can just do some half-assed kind of involvement, you know, half with your mind somewhere else. But you can, you know, you can find yourself in a temple and suddenly be moved by looking at that Buddha figure. Now, who created that? You know, it's your own mind. But yet, if it weren't for it, it's like throwing darts. You know, we throw um, 99 times before you hit the bullseye. But were those 99 times wasted? No, they weren't. Um, it said, I think, in, um, in Chinese Pure Land tradition, you know, people chanting Amitabha's name and, and having questions of doubt and feeling like, well, this, what is this doing? I'm not experiencing anything like that. But the power of the moment of death, it said that all of that positive intention and connection, like all crystallizes in one moment. So there's great power when we drop this, this um, distraction that we've got going on all the time. It said that the mind is 19 times more powerful. I love these mathematical <laughs> examples. Yeah. <laughs> 19 times more powerful at the moment of death because you know the body drops away and, and we, we don't have this obsession there. There's no object for this obsession anymore. So this is the power of the mind, these practices. Um, we have the example, 2,600 years. You can see it, it's really, really amazing. You know, if you play the telephone game, how, how teachings can get corrupted within a short, short period of time. And somehow the Buddhists haven't done that. They've really kept it, they've really kept it pure, useful. And I think that's because they, from the get-go, have the understanding from the Buddha himself that you know, my teachings are like the finger pointing at the moon. It's not the moon itself. So don't mistake the finger for the moon. And that's what allows you to have doubt. You don't have to hide your doubt. You can dig into your doubt. But the answer is the practice, the simply doing. It's like so simple. That's all we have to do is do it. You can be in a meditation retreat, like a 10-day retreat, and just feeling like you're just washed out, failure. <laughs> all your negatives come up everything. And you feel like, what did I accomplish? But if you've seen that, you know, you've seen how your mind is actually working. Uh, they say, you know, we all think that our mind is kind of pure until we start meditation. And you see just all the stuff. It's said to be that the meditation is like a, a ray of light, a shaft of light coming through the window into a room. You see all the dust motes dancing in there. You never saw them before. You thought the air was clean. Now you're seeing it. That is wisdom. Seeing your own distraction is wisdom. The ordinary person isn't. They're, they're thinking the distraction is absolute truth. And that's why the world is as it is. So this little book, I think, is so, so useful because, again, it's accessible. You can read one verse and try to apply it to your daily life. And you will have embarked on a wonderful journey. And uh, it, it truly the only valuable um, engagement that you can really have. Your whole life can be transformed. 
You don't change what you're doing. You don't change who you are. You don't change your habits. You don't change your job. You don't change anything, but change your mind. That's everything can be converted into this great effort. And uh, you get the benefit too. You're one of the sentient beings <laughs> that are being saved. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, I, it brings up a couple of things. And first I wanted to interject to, to say, and I'm not, because I'm not sure I said this at the beginning, is that I started the practice of the 37 practices of Bodhisattvas with my virtual Sangha, the everyday Sangha. And uh, we're going through it for probably six plus months and we're only in the second session of it. Uh, and and uh, a couple of the, you know, the great doubts, uh, people express things about uh, reading these things. Uh, we're using a text called Don't Believe Everything You Think by Tubton Children. And it's, <laughs> it, it takes you through the 37 practices with real life um, uh, examples from uh. her students, from other people who wrote in on her website and so forth, which are, it's very helpful because it like expands the Sangha for you. Uh -huh. You know, you see, you see, a, a, you see other people's like doubts and, and, you know, um, questioning of, of the sort of language. And so that brings me to this question that I get from some, uh, some of the people in, in, in the, in the Sangha that I facilitate. And that is, um, you know, and it's like what you said, it's like seeing the dust when you, you know, it's like, uh, you know, the dust was always there, but unless you shine a light on it, you didn't see it in the, the light is the meditation. And, and like in Pure Land practice, we say it's Amitabha's light that allows you to see your shadow, right? That's uh -huh. if it wasn't for Amitabha's light, you wouldn't see your shadow. And so you wouldn't know you were a big dodo, you know, you wouldn't know. <laughs> And, and once you know you're a big dodo, then it gives you the opportunity to try to fix it a little bit. Um, not that you do, but you try. Um, but also, Wendy, to interrupt, sorry, but you also then know that the other people are in the same situation. Exactly. And that's and then you true compassion. You know compassion. they're lost in their thoughts like you are. Right, right, exactly. And that's and that's it. When you've accepted that you were um, a Shinran, uh, the word used in... Uh, in uh, um, Shin Buddhism is uh, Shinran talked about the bamboo nature, bamboo. Uh -huh, bamboo. Yeah, 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 but, yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, <clears throat> and um, once you realize that you have that nature as well as Buddha nature, right. then uh, then you then you then it opens up space for great compassion. But you you have to actually see that in yourself first, you know. You, you otherwise you just think, well, I'm this wonderful people, and what what is wrong with everybody, you know? <laughs> <laughs> why why they're making my life a living hell you know right. <laughs> but anyway the the one of the doubts that keep coming up in in this 37 practices even though we you and i have both talked about it as essentially practical everyday stuff um and this is the same with the bodhisattva vow you know it seems impossible i will save all beings right um uh -huh. like everybody always says come on <laughs> All right, <laughs> but then you know in the Di diamond sutra it says well once you, you know once you get to uh once you get to to nirvana and, and you know you bring all beings to nirvana you will see that there are no beings there and that's that's <laughs> that's the that's the verse that opened my mind up to that concept of saving all mm -hmm. beings but that's a pretty hard thing to explain so these practices you know they have very it's very strong language like you know they you know they say 
you know, uh, give up this life and, um, and give up your homeland. Mm -hmm. And, um, and they talk about, uh, uh, therefore, even at the cost of your own life, uh, (laughs) uh, strive as if to put a fire off, off on your, put a fire out on your head and all this language that, you know, to, to people who read, like you know uh, the the new york times top 10 buddhist books right that huh. stuff sounds ridiculous to them and right. right so but i was trying to explain it in, to my sangha and and i think this would help because if anybody after reading this podcast picks up the 37 practices i think they might have this problem so if you can help uh-huh. explain like um i try to explain it like Okay, if let's say you were doing um, taking up uh, fitness training, and, and and you're in a gym, and 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 somebody's talking to you with great uh, hyperbole, in 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 the way in which you are to do these uh, these uh, weightlifting practices, or in my case, try to do more than one sit up, right? <laughs> And it's like, to me, that's like the Bodhisattva path, you know, no, I can't do that. I'll never do more than one sit up. That's impossible. But they give you great hyperbole uh, to try to sort of like light a fire under you to get you to try to do it. So how do you answer someone who says, like, we should read one of these? Um, do you want to read one of these and, and, and try to yeah. answer somebody, pick one of those most uh, yeah. unbelievable ones <laughs> well here even even a simple one maybe when you keep their company your three poisons increase that's greed anger and delusion your activities of hearing thinking and meditating decline and they make you lose your love and compassion which is the cause of buddhahood give up bad friends this is the practice of bodhisattvas <laughs> yes yeah, so good this one. one comes up all the time because right. i I have to give up all my friends. This is like joining a cult. What the hell? <laughs> but there are different levels of meaning. First of all, you never stop loving bad friends. That is the practice. Uh, but what's a bad friend? Well, a bad friend is someone who's influenced you in the wrong way all the time. So you give up the influence on them and you don't seek them out. We once had a, a wonderful teacher here, a Canadian, one of the first women to do a three-year retreat in the West. Actually, did, she did it in France, but um, no, I'm sorry, she did do it here. One of the first ones, a student at Kala Rinpoche, Chase, um, uh, Lama Dechen Wangmo. She's now out in Hawaii, and she's a wonderful, wonderful teacher and, and translator. Um, and she came to our Dharma Center once to give a talk, and we took her out to a restaurant, and the sort of the greeting crowd went out to the restaurant with her. And we had one new person who wasn't a member in, in, in that, but she, she was a little problematic. Um, she was telling me about her various mental health arrests. And uh, she came to me once and said, what's this deal about compassion? And I said, well, you know, compassion. she said, I'm not into compassion. And I said, why is that? Because I'm worshiping Thor. And I said, okay, so this is the kind of thing that can happen in the Dharma Center. You get a wide range <laughs> of folks. Well, she was sitting, people chose who they sat with in the race restaurant there were numbers of, of tables and um she didn't know anybody and yet she managed to sit alone with one other crazy person <laughs> and lama lama Wanlo looked at me and and said because 
when she had arrived at the airport, she was having individual airport, then back to the Dharma Center, had some interviews before we went out, private interviews before we went out to um, the restaurant. And the person that Thor worshiper was sitting with had in his private interview with Dejan Wangmo given her a book of pornography. And Wang Mo said to me, she said, you know, this is, their minds are on the same wavelength. They're just attracted to each other. But even though they didn't know each other, they immediately kind of went together. So the quality of our mind. And so a bad friend is someone like that, who just is giving you all sorts of support in not practicing Dharma or practicing the wrong Dharma. Um, so you don't want people like that in your life. You know, it's like you're in a, in a lifeboat you don't want someone who's trying to pull you out of the boat, but it doesn't mean that you stop loving anybody. You just sort of restructure your social arrangements if necessary, but it's not cultish. It's not exclusionary. You're not trying to say, I'm only talking to Buddhists now. It's not that at all. Nothing like that. But also bad friends has an inner meaning. Your bad friends are your afflictive emotions. Your negative thought comes up. We immediately let it colonize our mind, take over, we act out of it. We're totally justified. Righteous anger, all of it. Jealousy, whatever's going on. Those are our bad friends. Abandon those guys. See if you can. So there's, and then even deeper than that, you know, the bad friend is this attachment we have to our imaginary self. Can you give up that bad friend? All it's done is it's caused you suffering again and again and again. Milarepa said, if we could see the tears we have shed, they'd fill the ocean. So it's very daunting, this situation that we have, and Buddha nature is very great. So if the language sounds, you know, at all kind of like uh, insistent or extreme, uh, the meaning isn't, the meaning isn't. And that's the important thing. You have to look at the tone of what happens. For instance, you can practice on, you know, when he's mentioning the Vajrayana, you know, they have like wrathful Buddhas. And you look and it's just like, oh, that's the most horrific picture I've ever seen in my life. But then you're in retreat and you're doing the mantra. The mantra is like totally sweet. And the effect is one, like all Buddhist practice, increases your compassion, patience, tolerance, all the good things. So the effect can be just the opposite of the appearance, you might say. We use appearances to get beyond appearances. And so too here, we have to use language. But the whole idea is to get beyond concepts by using concepts. Yeah, and that's and that's <clears throat> absolutely true. And, and it's what I've emphasized emphasized before is that you will find the meaning of, you know, don't don't focus so much on the words that are hanging you up, right? That's just an mm -hmm. like you said, it's an appearance, those words. It's it's like the finger pointing to the mood, though it's just a, an appearance, you know, bad friends and your concept of what bad friends means and um, give up your homeland, abandon your, mm -hmm. you know, abandon your wife, whatever. It's, it's, right. it's every, every one of them can really cause trouble for people. And it does actually, uh, you, you mentioned the word cult. Um, <clears throat> one of my longtime Sangha members actually said this this bothers me because people could use it as a cult. Well, I said, well, I doubt if people are using the 37 practices for cult-like worship. <laughs> I mean, right. I, just, I just don't see how that could happen, but maybe, right, right. maybe, because there, you know, there are, there've been some 
you know, bad Buddhist teachers, quote unquote, who <laughs> yes, done some bad things. And, <laughs> uh, and so I think that might be what he was referring to. But um, so that, you know, I get I, I got his concern, but I said, well, don't think of it as what someone else might do. Think of it as what how it works for you, because that's yes. the point. That yes, it's always the point. And, and you know, right. There's such skillfulness in all of this, and we often don't see it. I mean, if you think about it, we all love music, right? But there's no music without the silence between the notes. Right. But we're never looking at the silence, and we don't give the silence any kind of credit. No one goes onto YouTube and say, I want to hear silence. You know, they, they want to hear the music, but there's no music without it. There's no form without the emptiness and, and no emptiness without the form. But we, we live in this 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 one-sided kind of existence that we just habituate mentally again and again and again. And the skillfulness, again, we don't realize the skillfulness. So for instance, if, if someone's in a room and says my name, I am immediately attracted to them. I, I don't mean in an affectionate way, I mean, <laughs> I, but I can't ignore my name. The power of that name is so great. Why are salespeople and politicians always using your name when they talk to you? Because it's so powerful. Well, think of this. You say Amitabha's name. He is immediately attracted to you. You are immediately one with Amitabha just by saying that name. Now, as good scientific Westerners, we can't accept that. That seems like, oh, this is cultist. This is magical thinking. But in fact, it's just actually true. Now, if you read in the Pure Land Sutras at the end, they talk about the different levels of realization of the Pure Land. And the higher you go up, the less kind of form attachment there, there is. And this is the greatness of the Dharma that our mind is actually pure of all of this stuff. It's like Dalai Lama says, the nature of our mind is like space. It is just vast, but there are beautiful clouds and, and it's also, but blue, you know, it has, it has quality. It's not just emptiness. It's just this vastness. We can't say anything about space. It can be in the smallest, particle, it can be contain the, the whole universe, space is space. But at the same time, there are these beautiful cumulus clouds up there that we can relate to. They're pure form, you know, we can't touch them, but they're up there. And that helps us kind of experience the vastness of space. Those are all the Buddhas. And then we've got rain, beautiful rain coming down here, nourishing, nourishing us. That's that's the historical Buddha. That's our life. That's the 37 practices text. We, we can experience that vastness through the miracle of this nourishing rain that comes to us. But of course, we can just think of it as just rain. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're, it, it is our mind. It, it said that, you know, when someone's on um, looking at a teacher or looking at something like the Dharma, it, it, the Dharma is like the ocean. It's completely vast. But we're on the shore. And we can either, we can come with a thimble and we'll take away a thimble full of water, wisdom, or we can come with a big tanker trunk and take a whole bunch, or we can plunge into the ocean too. So, it, but it's all up to us. It, it isn't the ocean's fault that we don't have any water. Uh, it, it's completely up to us. Yeah, and that's, that's so important. And, you know, it, you know the thing is, is it it's borders on just complete practicality and complete to others might see it as uh like you said 
like mystical, you know, I, I don't believe it, you know, I, 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 ha I would have to believe that there's an Amitabha to believe what you just said. Right. 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 And, and I don't believe there's an Amitabha. So therefore I have to throw out the whole thing that you just said. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I hear him, I'm here him out there saying these things. <laughs> right. And, 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 um, and I, I, and I want you to speak to this because it's, it's, it, it sticks me every time is how, how can you believe in Amitabha and not believe it in, in, in it the way they think you believe in it? And does that make any sense? <laughs> right. right. Well, I, I, I again, feel like I'm talking to Zen Cohen here, but you know. It's always the understanding. You know, so what Amitabha, infinite light. Good grief. Do you, can't, you can't believe in infinite light? We, 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 we've got telescopes these days. Exactly. We're still learning stuff. And also, so much of what we know about our own culture has been sort of corrupted. I don't mean some evil people out there, you know, corrupting things. I mean our own understanding. You go back and read um, Thomas Aquinas and the, uh, the, the complete what is is good, but how come there's all this suffering? I mean, these are very profound questions. They've been dealt with in our cultures, too. But we've kind of, you know, we've lost that. People don't know. They think their history is evil, so they have to destroy it. People don't know five minutes ago what happened or that their, their position was completely contradicted by themselves 10 years ago. <laughs> I mean, it's just the, the impermanence. The, there's nothing to rely on there. doesn't mean that you reject life at all. You're living life fully for the first time instead of living your imagination of your life. We live in a reactive state. Stuff happens, our afflictive emotions come up, and we're just dealing with that. We, we have lost the purity, even of those afflictions. And so this is, this is the greatness of the Buddhist method and message. I mean, you look at the Buddha's, read the Buddha's life. I mean, it's just amazing. Think what he must have felt in order to leave his family the way he did and his extremely privileged position. And then to not accept any kind of like half solution. He went through hell for six years. Yeah. And imagine the motivation that says, okay, I'm going to sit under this tree and I'm not getting up until I understand. You go to retreat and see how easily you want to run away. <laughs> I never want to do this again. I can share one story, I think, because it's really nothing profound, but it just shows you how beyond wonder of wonders. That's what the Buddha said at his enlightenment. Wonder of wonders. There's nothing better. So I know I had, you know, I had spent, I think, 15 years at a Zen center, which is a lot of meditation and stuff. And you can have a certain kind of, um, you know, even like arrogance that comes up just because nobody else is doing that. And, you know, the ego is just a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of arrogance. You go on university campuses where there's a lot of knowledge. There's a whole lot of arrogance. It's like we're stained as human beings. But the fundamental humility is to realize that. So, I mean, after all this meditation that I'd, I'd done, Garton Rinpoche was giving a uh, retreat on the wrathful form of Manjushri, the, the Buddha of wisdom. And that sounded pretty good to me. So I thought I'd go. Well, it, you know, it's nine days, 20, 24 hours a day. You sleep on the place where you're meditating. 
Um, you rotate, they divide you into three groups. Two groups are up through the night while one group is sleeping. Then they ring a bell and you switch. So you get, you know, three hours of sleep a night. You can't leave. You can't talk. You can go to the bathroom. <laughs> they bring you food <laughs> like that. And I was so proud of myself because I've been through so many retreats and, oh, this is a piece of cake, you know. Well, I just totally fell apart. I brought the wrong cushion and I, I everything was just <laughs> wrong. And it's one thing to sit for 30 minutes and then you get to walk around a little bit, walking meditation. But there's no relief because you're in the same damn spot for 24 hours a day. All right. So I was sitting like, <laughs> like four spots down from Gar Rinpoche. That's not an advanced uh, seat or anything. It just happened to be where it was because he's doing this with us, you know, a 70 year old guy. I'm having, I'm having hallucinations. Like I can't do this. I can't do this. I'm just totally falling apart psychologically, physically. I'm just a wreck. And I'm having uh, uh, hallucinations of, of, of uh, waterfalls of milk coming down on me and somehow giving me some sort of satisfaction. <laughs> just there. Before I know it, Garth Rinpoche had a pitcher of milk that he had for his tea. He passed it from one person down to another to me. You're and so kidding. <laughs> I, you know, I thought, well, I, I'm in hell, but at least he knows I'm in hell like that. <laughs> then I'll share one other thing, because I think it's important to show you how profound these things are. This isn't profound. This is just the effect of psychologically on someone. So the next year, <laughs> I was at the same retreat and I was sitting, you know, maybe 10 feet away from him. And uh, I was panicked because I was so exhausted. Uh, it's at higher altitude and I don't sleep at altitude. And I was just obsessing about, I'm not gonna be able to sleep. I'm not gonna be able to sleep. So this, the first night I couldn't sleep. And so the second night, all day, I can't sleep. I'm not gonna be able to sleep. And then the, finally it's my time to sleep. And I lay down in my place like you do. I fell asleep for maybe 30 seconds. And then I popped up, and this is like at two in the morning. I popped up in a complete panic. I've never had a panic attack in my life. I'm just thinking, I'm just screwed. I can't sleep. I just can't sleep. And I thought to myself, you know what? I'm going to jump up. I'm going to go out into the meditation room here, the, 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 the dining room where you could go. And I'm just going to walk around until I collapse and fall down because I just can't. I'm looking at nine days without sleep. I, I'll, I'll die. Well, it wasn't Garumpache's time. He was supposed to be sleeping. You know, it's his session at night. It was over. He was supposed to be sleeping. But when I jumped up and turned to walk out of the shrine to go to the dining room, he was looking at me and he was doing his prayer wheel with a big, big smile. And you can't see my gesture, but he just gestured with his hand this, this way to the dining hall, you know, in silence. <laughs> and it broke the panic. I knew that he knew my struggles. And having one person in your life who's like really, really in tune with your suffering. And that's the Dharma. You don't have to have a teacher. You don't have to have a guru, any of that. Yeah, wonderful if you do, but the Dharma is that. The Buddha said, after I'm gone, I will live in the syllables, in the letters of, of, the, of the teachings. So that's there. You can study the Dharma, you can, and you can apply it to your life. That's the key thing. The, uh, the apply. And to apply it though, you know, you have to have some degree of confidence, whatever degree of confidence you have, apply it to your life and see the results. You know, you could find out is this benefit or not. That, that is, Oh, I'm so glad you said that because the, the ongoing question 
as, and I'm sure you get it all the time, is I don't have a teacher. I don't have a teacher. Where can I get a teacher? I need a teacher. Um, and, and um, you know, I, you, you, you steer people towards local sanghas if there is one, you know, tr try them out, see what feels like it's a, you know, a match to who, to who you are. If you run screaming from there, it doesn't necessarily mean you, might, you shouldn't go back. Um, right. <laughs> I, I saw many people run screaming from the Dharma <laughs> Center once they saw the wrathful deities, um, <laughs> including, I think I, I was a little shocked myself, but um, <laughs> I remember once actually sitting in a, uh, actually once I was sitting in a, a teaching in the Dharma Center and I was facing, I don't know who it was. I, I forget which deity yeah. it was. And I couldn't look. I just couldn't look. <laughs> I, I was like, I had to keep putting my 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 eyes down and looking the other way, even though the teacher was right there and the translator, who I think was your daughter, was right there. Um, but I I I just couldn't look at it because it 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 it, it disturbed me, you know. And, and, and even though I knew that was ridiculous because I had enough teachings to know that was ridiculous, I couldn't help it. So. Um, <laughs> But that doesn't mean that you won't find the Dharma there. It just doesn't mean that. And, and but yeah, but I'm so glad you said the Dharma is the Buddha. The Buddha, you know, is with you in the syllables. And I'm so glad you said that because I think that puts a lot of people at peace um, and, and makes them feel good about practicing the Dharma on their own. It's great if you can have a Sangha to practice it with, which is what I started. I mean, I'm not a teacher and I always say I'm not a teacher. I'm a facilitator um, mm -hmm. so that we can and I'm your spiritual friend and we can all do this together. And I'll tell mm -hmm. you how badly I'm doing and you can tell me how badly mm -hmm. you're doing. But that's good. Sangha is good. You can find Sangha, but you may not always find a teacher, especially these days, because they're just they haven't been there. You know, there, it was probably even easier to find a teacher like. 15, 20 years ago than it is now. Yeah. I mean, I what do you true. think? Yeah, I yeah. think that's uh, that's true. And also, it, it is absolutely true. I mean, this at one point, this sounded like just like words, but I think it's absolutely true. When the student is ready, the teacher appears. And um, when I first met Garchan Rupche, I was fighting to, not, to have him not come to Rochester. Um, so we don't know what we're doing. We didn't have the money. We couldn't afford a translator. You know, we don't, we, we don't need this guy now. Who is he anyway? You know, this is how stupid we are. This is how stupid we are. Um, so when we hear something like, you know, when the student is ready, the teacher appears, our egos immediately says, well, I'm ready. I mean, I'm spiritually advanced. It, all of that, just drop all of it. Just let it happen. Trust your own mind. If you're working without a teacher right now, that's fine. That's absolutely fine. Um, these things happen spontaneously. The important thing is to be studying and practicing the Dharma, working on your own mind, developing your own compassion in your own life. The rest of it will unfold. It's your nature unfolding. We're not creating our Buddha nature. We, we don't have to create the results of our meditation, the results of our chanting, the result of our practice. None of that. It, it's, it's so completely simple. You know, you can have all the complexities of like teachings and Tibetan Buddhism. Oh, my goodness, the Vajrayana. You can get lost in symbolism. But it, it's just practicing the mind of the deity, which is your Buddha nature. Um, 
we complicate it. <laughs> we complicate, yeah, we, we, complicate, we like to complicate. We complicate everything, and and then and, and like I always say, when they come to when people first come to Buddhism and see all those lists, I always say, trust me, this makes it easier. You won't understand. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> really, if it, it gives you the if it gives you the confidence that you don't have to know the list. You know, I mean, this is the funny thing. It's like again, Dalai Lama winning the Nobel Peace Prize. Nobody out there knows Dalai Lama's teachings. They really don't. But they figure somebody checked this guy out before they gave him that big prize. So, you know, there's immediate more. It's like a credential. I mean, I'm a lawyer and I realize, you know, why do they call it practice? I had a, a friend who who got a medical degree as a doctor. And he says and he was scared as a resident. He said, now I know why they call it practice. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> you have to practice. But that's the best, you know, the, the world can do. But I'll share one other story. The Zunkzar Kensei tells this. This is probably not for your your sangha, <laughs> but to give you the, the confidence that some of these great Tibetans have. And why do they have it? Look, I don't understand relativity. I don't understand Einstein. I don't understand string theory, all that kind of stuff. But I have confidence that Einstein was, was valid, you know, that he was, do, he was sincere, that what he was doing. So all of us have that kind of natural confidence. Many Tibetans have that kind of confidence in the Dharma. Why? Because their Thomas Jefferson was a Buddhist monk. You know, their George Washington was a Buddhist monk. Their Albert Einstein was a Buddhist monk. So they have some you know, something to go on here. So, <laughs> so somebody was at a Tibetan was at a teaching that the 16th Karmapa gave, and uh, I, I think it's the 16th Karmapa. I might, might have the the actual Lama wrong. At any rate, um, uh, he was chewing tobacco. <laughs> and, and spitting the tobacco <laughs> into a little a little cup, you know, and uh, and so so this um, uh, one the Tibetan who witnessed this told another Tibetan who's a student of Zongsar Kensei. So this Tibetan who had heard the story talking to Zongsar Kensei, and he had this Tibetan reaction like, no, 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 Karmapa didn't chew tobacco, like denying reality because he didn't didn't he he couldn't imagine the Lama chewing tobacco. And um, so Zongstar Kensei is talking to him and says, no, 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 um, he, he just could not accept it. Well, Zongstar Kensei went to his great teacher, Yugo Kensei Rinpoche, one of the really one of the great lamas and told him this same story. You know, um, the first, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm blowing it a little bit here. The Tibetan was making all sorts of excuses. You saw it wrong, you know, all these things that we do trying to explain away right. things that we don't like about reality, you know. Um, or maybe he was doing for someone else. I mean, you know, it's just all this kind of stuff. But then Zongsar Kensei told the story to his great teacher, Digo Kensei Rinpoche, and said, you know, the Karmapa was chewing and spitting tobacco in a little cup. And Zongsar Kensei said, can, can you get me some of that spit? That'll be a powerful blessing. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so that's not for an American audience. <laughs> but... Where the Tibetans might go too far with kind of a credulous kind of faith, we go too far with a skeptical kind of faith. Faith. There's, there's, there's nothing wrong with doubt, but you don't want skepticism, which is just trying to disprove everything. In other words, you already have a conviction there. None of this can be right. So therefore, I'm somehow protecting myself. In a sense, there's wisdom there. You're feeling the power of these teachings to dissolve your ego. Yeah, exactly. And that's what a wonderful place to to stop because you 
you, you both talked about the power of teachers and then the power of Dharma. And if you practice it, um, a teacher may or may not appear. And, you know, um, one of my teachers in the Galupa tradition used to say, um, watch out, there are Buddhas everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's, a, you know, it, it changes the way you look at things a little bit. And, and you may or may not believe it, but um, I think that that is the point. If you, if you immerse yourself in the teachings, in the Dharma, um, there are Buddhas everywhere showing you m more how to be this bodhisattva in training, right? Because mm -hmm. that, that's mm -hmm. when, when we're doing these 37 practices of bodhisattvas, let's, let's, we're not bodhisattvas. We're, we're bodhisattvas in training. Like you talked about what the first level would be, absolute joy. Well, clearly we are in training because I'm not there yet. So, <laughs> so. And yet, Wendy, the power is so great because in this vastness of the universe to have something that is actually valid, that is based on reality, not about our projections of reality. So there, Shantideva tells the story of... Um, Excuse me, I think it was Dogen. But nonetheless, there was a uh, prostitute in ancient India who, as a big joke, put on a nun's robes and danced around for her, her uh, clients. <laughs> this is a big joke. You know, the contrast is so funny. Yeah. Um, it said that because of the merit of those robes, the powerful virtue that is instilled in those robes, that she was reborn in one of the heavenly realms. <laughs> See, yeah so yeah. You, you can't if you touch these things it affects you it's about training the mind if you're aware of it even just the name dharma nagarjuna said even hearing the name emptiness dissolves samsara amazing it is it's amazing and i hope people take this the way in which it was presented because we we were all we were we were we were in tibetan buddhism we were in the the way the secular buddhists may might see it we were all over the place but if you keep your mind open then you have uh, the space to uh, have the light shine in the the wisdom light shine in but you must you can't be skeptical, like Frank said. You have to keep your mind open. So once again, Frank, thank you for um, uh, for helping me out in this this uh, this episode because um, I wasn't quite sure how I was going to present the thirty seven practices. So <laughs> <laughs> you 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 really did a great service, and uh, um, well, thank you, Wendy. And you're also uh, uh, again, you know, you're one of this podcast favorite guest because you're number two <laughs> and, and if i quickly invite you again you'll be the top uh guest <laughs> i'll put it on my resume yeah yeah that, it's going to give you a lot of cred somewhere i don't know where <laughs> so so thanks again frank thank you wendy that's it for this episode i hope you enjoyed the conversation i will post a link to Garchin Rinpoche's website, where you can download a PDF of the 37 Practices of Bodhisattvas. Um, plus, I will post links to other books with teaching commentaries on the 37 Practices. I will post uh, 
probably links to three of them, two of which we're studying in our everyday sangha. And of course, more details uh, on Frank Howard and the White Lotus Buddhist Center um, will be on the website. And don't forget that you can join me and others in the private donation-supported Everyday Sangha that meets virtually via Zoom every other week on Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. The Sangha is currently studying and practicing the 37 practices. And please consider supporting the efforts of this podcast and related groups by becoming a community member for $5 a month. If you do, you will have access to blogs, members-only podcasts, education series, a private Facebook group, and hopefully more to come. Okay, until next time, keep finding ways to make yours and everyone's days better.